You're listening to The Nature of Story. I'm Michael Nielsen. Thanks so much for tuning in to yet another conversation about storytelling in society. Um, If you're a science geek or are into getting into the weeds on uh, uh, neuroscience uh, uh, topics as they relate to narrative, this is the episode for you. Um, this is this is a dense one. Uh, we're going to be talking to Professor Lucas C. Para. Um, uh, he is uh, uh, currently um, uh, a professor of biomedical engineering, uh, operating out of City College of New York. Um, and uh, he he was actually his name was given to me by Kendall Haven, um, who we interviewed uh, as our second guest, uh, which you can listen to back in the second episode, um, as one of the leading research scientists currently working on the effects of story and narrative on the brain. Um, now he is a research scientist, so he he's not in the the. The profession necessarily of popularizing uh, what he's researching, so he's going to use terminology that I want to kind of prepare you for to kind of know how to decode it for your purposes. <laughs> so when I when I say that he's studying the effects of story and narrative on the brain, the way he says that, which is ac- more accurate in the science realm, is he's effect he's studying the effects of natural and external stimuli on the brain. Um, uh, which he will talk about uh, uh, being something that they, you know, that that's commonly studied with like flashes of light uh, 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 that people perceive, um, and he's just doing it with videos and advertisements and commercials and video games and and studying the the human mind and how it operates when interacting with that kind of external stimuli. So when you hear him talking about the effects of stimuli on the brain and things like that, just think story and narrative. Um, but we, we, we talk about so much. It's it's fascinating, fascinating work he's doing. Um, we go into tons of things like you know, defining what engagement means. What does it mean as, as, a, as a measurement of, of uh, 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 someone's engagement with a piece of video or, or some, something happening to them, something they're experiencing? Um, we talk about why Alfred Hitchcock was, as he says, uh, a master of narrative framing. They use specifically Alfred Hitchcock scenes um, and old Alfred Hitchcock presents episodes as the stimuli in some of their studies because Hitchcock was so good at directing the audience's attention here and there within the frame. We talk about Super Bowl ads that they use. Uh, uh, we talk about uh, tweets and the, and the 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 density and and uh, uh, the the number of tweets that come out at certain points during episodes of The Walking Dead when they air on television and does that correlate with the audience being more in sync in their their experience of The Walking Dead episode at that time and so many things it, it, oh, and, and finally also we talk about uh, uh, perception of time time perception. When you're watching a movie, when you're watching a TV show, when you're binge watching Netflix and it seems like a whole day goes by in a blink of an instant, what is that? Why does time fly when we're, you know, quote, having fun, when we're watching something like that? It's fascinating. His studies on perception and the effects of stimuli on the brain are some of the the, the tip of the sword, if it, 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 to, to use the phrase, uh, uh, on our current understanding of, of how narrative works on us as human beings. Um, so uh, this, is, this is a fascinating conversa- conversation. Um, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that he was willing to have it with me. And uh, yeah, without further ado, I give you Professor Lucas C. Para. 
just starting off, I'm, I'm just kind of curious what brought you to this field of research, I, I, you know, studying the effects of, of natural stimuli on the brain. Like, wh what brought you here? Curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> it's key. I've been, I've been um, so my area of research has been on interpreting brain signals, this, this idea of uh, reading the brain. Um, and uh, in the lab, we work a lot with artificial stimuli like flashes and beeps and tones and maybe s snippets of speech. But a uh, long time ago, I decided I'm not interested in any of that. I'm interested in real life. I'm interested in, in, in um, you know, people interacting, how we perceive the real world. Um, Video was a good uh, a good starting point because video is nice in that it's very reproducible. So you can show the same video to one person, another person, another person. It's presumably the identical experience, um, yet it's very, uh, quote unquote, natural. I mean, it's not really natural. Nothing about video is natural, really. A Hollywood movie is not natural, but, <laughs> but it's a lot closer to real life than, than your typical um, neuroscience 101 kind of experiment with flashes and beeps on the screen. So video is something we got interested in uh, some time back. And so decoding brain activity while we watch movies, that's the, the, the idea. Yeah. That's how I, I got to it. Um, and, and, and then when it comes to videos, we quickly discovered that videos that are that tell a story are much more compelling to an audience. And, um, and, and so we worked a lot with, with stories, really, in, in videos. So um, that's, that's how I got to it. So what, you say it's curiosity drove you here. What do you find most fascinating about it, do you think? Is it, is it just that how early on we are in this research and how kind of unproven a lot of this is? Or, or, like, or how, what, what, what is it that you find so enticing? Don't you want to know how the brain works? I do. I do. Yes. <laughs> well, <so> do I. <laughs> that's the curiosity. That's right there. I mean, uh, yeah, that's generally what interests me. I my background is in machine learning, and uh, and this is a very hot topic right now. Everybody's yeah. like uh, thinking about uh, self-driving cars and, and what have you. Um, so machine learning uh, is very hot right now. But back in the in the 90s, back in the 90s, machine learning had kind of, I would say, stagnized a bit. It was kind of not making much progress. And, and um, it was going sort of in all kinds of different directions. And I felt like, let's, let's figure out how the brain does it. How does the biological, well, not artificially, a biological intelligence really work? Um, artificial neural networks was the thing at the time. So I wanted to know how biological real neural networks uh, work so that maybe we can learn from them. Um, so it turns out machine learning is taken off incredibly. I, I left the field too early. That was really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I should have stuck with it. <laughs> maybe I'll be rich now, but, right. uh, but that's not how it went. But no, anyway, I was interested in, in biological learning and in how the brain works. And and so um, this brain decoding or interpreting brain signals, I guess because of my interest in, in again, machine learning was kind of a natural thing for me to, to work on. And so so that's, that's kind of the somewhat accidental history of it. But uh, generally I'd like to understand how we process 
how we process stimuli, how we understand the world. Process stimuli because it's kind of this easiest thing to really get your hand around. I mean, your mind around. And there's there's a lot of interest in in how um, what is consciousness yeah. and 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 how does memory work and and how are emotions and that's all lovely, but it's hard hard to really get a handle on. Perception seems like the more straightforward thing. Send something, you hear it, you react to it. Maybe you push a button when you've recognized something, when you detected something. So it's a fairly tight, um, tight loop between what you present to a person and what they do with it. And then, so hopefully, we can make some headway in, in how the brain works. All these sort of higher level concepts, I find maybe I'm not old enough to, to be dealing with those. So perception, therefore, is something that I think is really quite tractable. But as I said. Uh, with an interest in, in the most natural form of perception. Because we did a number of experiments with, with record brain signals in somewhat laboratory-type settings, and we noticed that smallest changes lead to really very different brain activity. And so I, I felt like um, unless we're dealing with real stimuli, we're really not really learning about how the brain processes uh, information in real life. Well, and I and I want to get to that a little bit with the, with, with the stimuli you, you chose, especially in the two papers you shared with me in your email about um, uh, uh, two recently published papers. One that was on memory, and one that was on uh, uh, I got it right here. Uh, time perception, like mistime, like time perception. Oh, yeah, that one, yes. Yeah, um, I find those two those two both fascinating, and they both were surround. They were both experiments based on showing video, correct? Yeah, so I can tell you about those. So um, we've we've worked with, as I said, um, um, Hollywood type things. Um, Hitchcock, for instance, was the first one we worked with. Um, Hitchcock is really a master in uh, what's called narrative framing. Okay. Because he knows exactly what you're attending to when, yeah, and what you're looking at when. And when the person enters, you will look at that person and then walk. And then, so he knows, well, at least it seems to me, he knows exactly what information you have. What are you thinking at a certain moment? Where will you be looking at? So he really takes your mind and takes it for a ride (laughs) the way he wants it. And so as a result, we found that in one, a very suspenseful Hitchcock clip that we looked at um, called Bang Your Dead is something. It's out of a short series that he had uh, for TV. Um, you can look it up later. Yeah. Um, we, we saw that uh, that the brain responses to this clip were very similar across people. So if you were watching that clip and I was watching that clip, our brain waves, literally when we put, so what are brain waves? Maybe I should say first, we put electrodes on the head. Uh, the way you would do it if you maybe uh, have a, have hit your head against something, you have a concussion, you go to the doctor and say, you have a headache, let me put some electrodes on you and we'll record your brain activity, see if you're okay. So that's called electroencephalography. It's a common technique used also for for detecting epilepsy. It's a common technique used to to diagnose sleep disorders. When you're sleeping, you can't really tell what's going on. So you put electrodes on the head to figure out what's going on in the head. So electroencephalography is something we use in the lab. We record this brain activity. It's also commonly known as brain waves. So when people say brain waves, that's it. With electrodes, there's oscillations going up and down. And so we look at your activity up and down while you're watching Hitchcock. We look at my activity, watching the same Hitchcock clip. And it turns out that when the, when the story is good, 
our brain waves go up and down together. So we're in sync in a way. Um, and, and this happens, however, only if you're really paying attention. If you're watching, but you're actually, you know, thinking about something else, then our brain waves are like, you know, separate. They're not going, they're not in synchrony. So Hitchcock really, therefore, is a, really a master of synchronizing the audience's brain. Yeah. It really brings us in sync. So when we're talking and saying, oh, we're in sync, it really, literally this film means that our brains are synchronized by virtue of the common stimulus. But as, again, as I said, only if it's catching our attention. And so, so that was one, I don't know if that's one of the papers, but one paper we, we tested that specifically. So we distract the viewer. So we have you watch the same Hitchcock clip, but now we're telling you in your head, count backwards in steps of seven, starting at a thousand. So this would be like a thousand, uh, 993, 980, um, CR Relu's track 86, I think. And so, so it's difficult, so it's hard to pay attention to what you're actually watching because you're in your head, sure enough, your brain and that of somebody else counting in their head is totally asynchronous. So attention to the stimulus will will determine whether or not you're synchronized by the stimulus. So that was the first thing that we found out. The other thing we found out, and this is perhaps not surprising in hindsight, is that when we um, showed the story, this was actually a different, do you know Story Corps? Yes. Story Corps is, is very nice. It's this radio program that's designed for radio. But the good stories, uh, Story Corps takes them and draws cartoons and puts them online. So they, they make them animations. So, so it's, that's nice about Story Corp that we can look at visual and auditory storytelling, if you will. And so anyway, a few of these we took and presented to our subjects in, in the lab. These are very uh, nice autobiographical stories. They're easy to remember. Um, and so we measured the brain activity. And unbeknownst to the subjects, three weeks later, we asked them, through a survey, how much do you remember of this story? Do you remember when John met uh, Sally? Was that in Japan or was that in New York? Questions of that nature. It may be easy if you just saw one, but it's much harder if you saw 10 of them and you asked about it three weeks later. So what we found is that when people were very synchronized, in those moments of the story, three weeks later, they will remember facts about those moments where they were highly synchronized. So. When the story is compelling, it attracts your attention, it synchronizes your brain, and you also remember later on what the story was about. So that was another finding that we had, that, that when, when, uh, when engaging narratives capture attention, therefore you also will remember them better. That's fascinating because I, I, I wanted to ask that earlier when you said that you like videos because ostensibly it's a way of replicating the experience for everybody individually because it's the same video. I was curious how we know that, and, and it sounds like this is one way that we've kind of shown that uh, at, at, with the, the research you've done is being, by measuring these brain waves. Um, I'm a little surprised by that. I, I'm both surprised and not surprised because on the one hand, you watch a movie in a movie theater and everyone, if it's a horror movie, everyone screams in unison, right? And you can see that. On the other hand, I'm a little surprised by the, re by the result um, because I assume some level of individual interpretation of relevance or pattern recognition or just something that would be unique to each individual. And, and it sounds like this shows that that's not the case. You would like to think that, right? I that would. we're somehow individual. 
maybe that's a cultural thing. <laughs> maybe. You know, other cultures don't have a problem that we're all the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very possible. No, but you make a good point. It's just something that depends on on uh, perhaps cultural factors. Yeah. Do do does a common cultural background predisposes us to perceive the stories the same way? And that's very possible on a on a on a sort of more abstract level, say if I ask you in five minutes from now what you remember of the story or how you feel about the characters, sort of more high-level things. What we're picking up with these brain recordings, however, is sort of very immediate reactions, things that happen within a second. So we're looking at this sort of very immediate perception of the stimulus. Mm -hmm. And that apparently is not that unique. That apparently we really share in common. Now, the one thing I will tell you is whether or not we respond very sort of very quickly and rapidly, our brains to the stimuli depend, as I said before, on whether it's attracting our attention or not. Now, right. whether something attracts our attention or not may be very much a cultural thing. Another thing that we found with this business of attracting attention is we looked at Super Bowl commercials. Super Bowl commercials are basically designed for lots of people to like them. They're expensive ad space, so they're really very well made, very well produced and thought out. And so, and so there are um, some people watch Super Bowl commercials just for the commercials because uh, it's fun, and then they go online and then they maybe rate the commercials. So there are ratings on how good these commercials are. What we found is that commercials that were very popular high ratings, 9, 10 on a scale from 1 to 10, those ratings, those also popular commercials also synchronize the brains very well. So so when we have a lot in common, apparently we also like it. Yeah. So that was another interesting finding. What was interesting that in, in our study sample, we had about 20 people watch these commercials. We also asked them, well, how much did you like it? And we took those people's ratings to try to see if we can predict the population at large, the people out there, the thousands that had seen and rated it. And it turns out we weren't as good using the ratings as we were using the actual brain responses. So the people in our lab, their brains knew what they have in common and what they like with everybody out there. But their subjective ratings, which are perhaps... Um, you know, the, you think about it, did I like the actor that was in this commercial? Do I like the product, this product, I like this product. So there's all of these sort of higher level things that they were, they're very idiosyncratic that we may not share. Yeah. But on this sort of first immediate gut reaction, it turns out we're not that different. And, and what your brain likes apparently is very similar to what somebody else's brain likes. Yeah, yeah, that, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it, I, I find it to be a comforting feeling, personally. I think it's a cool, a cool thing that we share so much in common. Um, we could also predict Twitter. So oh. the amount of tweeting. So this was a study we did with um, The Walking Dead. You know The Walking oh, sure. Dead? Yeah. Pilot episode, 2010. We got tweeting behavior. So people out there tweeting. Apparently, that's what people do now. They <laughs> and tweet. And we counted each scene, how many tweets did it elicit? And sure enough, the number of tweets that a scene elicited correlated with whether people were in sync or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it, it, it makes logical sense, as you say, but it's interesting to see see it proven out. Is that now, – now, talking about that being in sync, you mentioned uh, uh, the idea that engagement must be 
high in order for that synchro synchro synchronization to happen how how are you i i read a little bit of the paper and i, and I was curious how you would articulate this how would you articulate or define engagement well, the word engagement right is an interesting word mm -hmm. in, in storytelling there's this concept of uh transportation you're transported in the story or or flow you're like in this story and you're taking like a flow into the story so there are th these words flow transportation engagement it's an engaging film. I went to the movies. It was very engaging, right? These are words. But what the hell does that actually really mean? Right. Engagement, frankly, engagement is when you give a ring to somebody and you promise you're going <laughs> to engage to get married or you give a check. You give a check to a lawyer and you say, here, you're engaged. I'll get you service. It's a commitment. Yeah. Really what it is, it's a commitment. In my opinion, a, a formal way. And so a formal way for engagement would be to say you commit how is that in film? Well, in film or media in general, you commit to spend time on it. What do we not have time? Nobody's got time. So if I sit online and watch your YouTube clip, and your YouTube clip, as a matter of fact, yes. and I commit to watch it, like I stick with it for more than 10 seconds, I say, oh, this is good. This is engaging. I'll commit some longer amount of time to, to your clip. It means I'm really engaged. I like what's going on. And so it becomes a very quantifiable thing suddenly. Suddenly, uh, we can just simply measure the time commitment that somebody devotes, the number of seconds per time that people are willing to commit. So so we did a study on that. We looked at YouTube analytics. In fact, your clips that you put online and that any content generator puts online, they get data back saying how many uh, people were watching each second of your story. And invariably and sadly, at the beginning of the 100% of people that are watching, after maybe a minute, you only have 80% of them. And after two minutes, you probably only have 70%. And if you're really good, you keep that number high throughout. If you're not that good, you lose everybody very quickly. So that slope, essentially, of how quickly you drop in viewership during the duration of a clip is a, is a good quantity of measure for engagement. And, and we've used this metric um, um, to quantify what engagement really means with storytelling, or well, storytelling, I shouldn't say, but with online video. Yeah. And it, sure enough, it turns out it's very nicely correlated, that slope. It's very nicely correlated with whether people are in sync or not. That is, when people are engaged, they will continue watching, they'll be committed to devote resource, namely scarce resource, their time to the story, and their brains will be really paying attention to the stimulus, and therefore, they'll respond very similar to other viewers. So, so we kind of triangulated this idea of engagement. It means that you commit time. It means that you will attend. It means that your brain is following what's going on in the stimulus. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's that's a, a very accessible thing for people to think about when they, because yeah, there's a lot of people throwing around the word engagement and what does it mean? And that-, that Yeah, I, yeah. everybody's yeah. like, in the classroom, when you talk to a teacher, what engagement is, is whether the kids are raising their hand or not or whether they're turning in their homework, or whether they're even showing up for class. Those yeah. are the sort of engagement measures, which for storytelling doesn't really work. So I think the more general definition for me, what now engagement could be, it's a, it's a measure of commitment, yeah. of a scarce resource. So if, if, if you have something you don't have a lot of, and you're willing to put it there, that means you're engaged, committed to that. And if it's a story, it's the time you're committing to it.
Yeah, I think that's a wonderful definition because that even to me would encompass uh, uh, the other use of the word engagement on like social media where people are commenting and liking and they're, they're committing their additional interaction with this piece of content. Passively. Yeah, and with social media, they're making their opinion public. So it's like an asset, right? It's your people are seeing what you're rating and so on. And so it's like your your um, I don't know, your public persona yeah. and depending on what you click or don't click how many followers you have or this and now somebody with a lot of followers says they like something something else with no follow and so it's that that is that is a asset right that you know people spend a lot of hours yeah. <laughs> waste that public persona and they're committing it by giving you a, a rating and or a like or a dislike and, and so that's that commitment i'm gonna say what i think yeah. and i'm gonna be open about it that's a real measure of engagement. Yeah. Now you put something on the table that counts. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's fantastic. Um, also talking about uh, that, that second component then on memory retention. So, so yeah. you, you, as engagement goes up, but also actually I, I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase because you, you, you started measuring how adding and subtracting different levels of uh, uh, sensory stimuli, like whether you add photos to audio, whether right. memory goes up. Can you tell me a little about that? Right. So that study that we did with the StoryCorp, remember I told you StoryCorp is nice because it's originally designed for uh, uh, for radio. So it's pure. Those are really just you know, cosmetic. You don't need them. You understand the story just as well. So the question was, does adding, and StoryCorp wanted to do more of that as well. Does adding, does all the work of adding cartoons, does that add to our storytelling? Does that people remember better or, you know, does it make any difference? And um, and we found indeed that adding the cartoons did two things. A, people remembered the stories better, even though the cartoons by themselves had no actual uh, uh, content to them. They were not relevant to the, to the narrative itself. You could recall, you could answer these questions just as well from just the audio. So just adding the visuals help people remember better. Now, why is that when the visuals had zero information? They really had no information. So, so we found, as I, as, as I mentioned before, that that when you're more attentive, you're also more synchronized and therefore you remember better. So they, 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 they increased the level of synchronization. So basically what we think they did is that the visuals help you attend more to the story, stay with it, stick with it, and therefore you remember it better. So the visuals, even though they were not informative, they assisted to keep you engaged with the story, and therefore you remember better. Yeah. So yeah, all of the all of the people that were doing the cartoons, they were happy to find out that all their work actually matters. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Keep doing it. Yeah. Um, you, you, but you also found the flip side of that coin that when uh, a piece of sensory information is not relevant or not deemed relevant to the to the primary source, it yeah. can actually hinder memory can you talk about this no in this case what we found so one thing we did is we took the wrong clips so we took the clips and scrambled the room so the clip were really totally unrelated you thought oh my god these are going to be distracting because people are going to try to figure out what is this, this the character doesn't match what does this cartoon have to do with what i'm hearing right didn't didn't make a difference really almost as good as the original so so um you showed the wrong cartoon, and yet people remembered better, and their brains were more synchronized. So the people that were doing the artwork, of course, weren't quite happy to hear about that. Right. 
because they would think that what they're actually drawing matters. Maybe it doesn't matter. Right. Put anything on the screen. <laughs> so, so what are what do you take from that? The fact that it, that it doesn't matter. I don't know. I think that um, I don't know. I, the only thing that comes to mind is I don't know if you watch kids watch TV. Yeah. You look at kids. So they're frozen, right? Right. And like little ones in particular, young children. When you put them in front of a TV, they basically cannot move. It's very hard to distract them. You have to like literally go in front of them and cover the screen up so that they attend to you because they're like something about the visuals. I think certainly in young children, but probably also in adults, has it's a capacity of really zooming and, and attracting our brain to that right. stimulus. It's apparently unrelated. Um, That's interesting. Movies are great, man. Yeah, yeah, they're powerful. Um, <laughs> it, that, that's I, I, it. Just makes me think because obviously. Oh, here's another study. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> right. No. Right. Reminds me of the kids. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting. You. No, please. It reminds me of another study we did with children. Um, we wondered whether children, when they watch movies, whether they attend more or less to certain things. We wondered with kids that have difficulties with attention, say attention deficit, um, have an easier or harder time with movies and so on. So we recorded the brain activity while they were watching films. And um, we didn't really find anything with attention deficit or, or anything like that but we did find an age effect that is younger children and older sort of teenage age were different um, in terms of how they synchronize now it's a question for you and your audience right guess young children versus older children in teenage age which of the two groups are more synchronized with each other so if you think it's a young children Raise your hand this way. Right, exactly. <laughs> Raise your hand this way. Let me see what you think. I would guess that it would. I would guess that it'd be younger. The youngers are more synchronized. Yes. Are you sure? Uh, maybe not, but that would be my guess. <laughs> All right. Very good. Okay. <laughs> nice job. I'll give you another one. We also found a difference in gender, boys and girls. Uh, for more synchronous. Um, more synchronous boys or girls I would guess women sorry you lost that oh, one no. <laughs> you had 50-50 you got one right one wrong you're about chance not too bad not too bad yeah right um, it's the boys it turns out the boys are more synchronized to each other however that difference in gender disappears with age oh okay so when up to 18 then boys and girls or male and female are are the same and we think that this is a developmental effect um, um, we think that it's commonly thought that that females neurally at least mature sooner and so we think that it's a developmental effect we don't know whether this is because they're just really fascinated and attracted by the stimulus as young children or whether this is some sort of neurology neurological development uh, but clearly there's there's a gender and, and age effect there and um, what we think happens with the older individuals is that they have a more diverse response. So by having a more diverse response, it's not as similar to each other. And that's across gender. That that with age, so as with age, as you get older, the responses become more diverse, yeah. and so therefore they are less similar, and so therefore people are less synchronized. Okay. Whereas younger children perhaps have a a, a more similar response because it's not as diverse. Yeah. Okay. 
part of the same. So that's a hypothesis right now. Yeah. Um, but there's some indication that with with development, the brain, um, and it kind of makes sense, the, the brain responds more uh, more individually, more, uh, a more differentiated way as compared to, to young children. We'll be right back. This podcast is produced by Story First Media, a video content production company focused on storytelling. Cultivate your audience with story, then convert them to customers. Let us know about your upcoming video project at www.storyfirstmedia.com. If you're consuming this content, you're either listening to it as a podcast or you're viewing it as a video because it exists in both forms. If you'd rather watch my guests than I talk over Skype video, you can find this and all subsequent episodes by subscribing to my YouTube channel. Or if you'd rather listen to the conversation, it's available for download wherever you get your podcasts. I really think these conversations are valuable and will only get better as we go on. And having earned your attention means the world to me. These aren't short conversations. Uh, so if you have any comments, questions, suggestions for guests or topics, books I should read, etc., please, please email me at thenatureofstory at gmail.com or get me on Twitter or Facebook at Michael Nielsen. That's N-E-E-L-S-E-N. All right, back to the interview. taken a lot of studies like this and tried to draw some uh, 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 speculative conclusions about storytelling and for writers from the, some of this stuff. Um, and he and he talks about the one big area left unexplored is how cr- cross-cultural uh, uh, story structure can be applied to different nations and you know people who don't inter- interact with each other. And when I hear you, that study you just talked about, about young children being more in sync, does that my guess would be that that would mean that that cultural uh, imp- imprint, as well as just getting older and and the experiences individuals have, changes that. Whereas it'd be interesting to see if like young children in America and young children in China and young children in Europe, if they're all in sync in some way yeah. and then diverge as well. I'd I'd be very curious to find that out. Yeah, I don't. Know. I haven't looked at any cultural effects yet. Yeah, in part because. In part because I'm in New York City, and well, actually, New York City is pretty diverse. Actually, yeah. I could get probably very different populations recruited, but at the end of the day, we end up recruiting our students to these studies <laughs> in a fairly homogeneous crowd in terms of age. Yeah. So, so I haven't I haven't looked at the cultural aspects as much. Yeah. Um, but again, because we're looking at fairly rapid responses of the brain, not sort of the higher, more higher level reasoning about the stories. Mm-hmm. I actually don't expect uh, that much difference yeah. uh, uh, across cultures yeah. that we have been using. And that's, and that's fascinating. I, obviously, it, it makes me think I, I wouldn't expect a lot different either when I think about, obviously, the, what, what a lot of cultural anthropologists have found over time about similarities and mythologies and things of that nature. It would seem that our brains are wired similarly, and I can't wait for the science to, to, to show that more fully. Um, I, I'm curious... Uh, um, we talked about engagement a little bit um, on this on this memory perspective once more, though. Uh, so, so you're 
is there a threshold where like too much sensory information can impact our ability to retain information or to, or to uh, uh, memorize something later? Or, or is there really no limit to that? Just pummel somebody from as many different senses as you can and it will always aid in the, the retention, do you think? I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, we do know that there's information overload and eventually we we don't absorb, but whether, whether making something that's that's simple stimulus, more complex and multi-sensory always adds and always is better, I, I don't really know. Yeah. I want to say that adding visuals always helps, but you know, I don't, I don't really know. Yeah. What, um, I think one big problem that we are facing in our modern society is that we're, we're switching a lot. So it's not so much that there's that it's multimedia versus single media, but we're constantly switching. Mm-hmm. So we don't keep our focus on one thing for, for too long of a time. I think that that kind of information over, uh, overload um, is, is a problem. But I think that's more related not to the quantity, but the, the fact that we don't stick with the story and that we're constantly switching. I think there's something about a cohesive narrative that allows us to remember things better. And if you're constantly breaking and switching from one to the next, I could imagine that that impacts memory a bit. Yeah, that that, that certainly rings true at a, at a subjective level. When I think about a lot of folks today uh, uh, that I talk to talk about, oh, you know, was my, they assess their day based on pr- productivity. Like, you know, oh, today was a productive day. Today felt like a productive day. And I've actually taken that to mean a little bit more like, how long were they able to stay attentive towards something like like that 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 they've jumped from one thing to another so often that at the end of the day you look back and you kind of go well I didn't really take anything from today like I just was kind yeah. of like constantly moving and and that that sounds similar to that that's interesting um, the thing I wanted to share with you which I think is one of the things the links that I sent you this business about perception of time yes I'd love to talk about that yeah so um, um, we did a, a study where we looked at whether people are engaged or not in that sense that I previously defined, which is, are they committed to continue watching? And we looked at the periods where people were more committed, as in we didn't have a large audience drop. So we had short intervals, just 16, uh, 12 seconds or so. So we're looking at the stories that are maybe several minutes long, and we look at short little intervals of 12 seconds and check if in those intervals we lost a lot of audience or we didn't. So presumably where we didn't lose audience, they were more engaged. And so there's this common um, um, this common uh, perception that when, um, when you're really absorbed by a narrative that then time flies. Yeah. Somehow time goes by faster, like uh, the story is over. It's like, my God, um, I thought this just started, right? So when you're having fun, time flies, I guess is the expression. And um, it's not what we found, you know. We actually found that that there wasn't really a trend in either direction. Because the opposite argument is that that you're really in the story and it's very rich and it fills you time and you feel like a lot has happened. And we also know that when a lot happened, we feel that more time elapsed. So there's kind of conflicting theories about that. When you're having fun, a lot happens and therefore you should feel like more time has passed. On the other hand, in real time, maybe it went past too quickly because it was so much fun. And so there's actually conflicting theories about this business of how time perception is affected by a compelling narrative. What we found is that neither one is true, but what is true is that when the audience is very engaged and their brains are very in sync, sort of ticking together, 
their perception of time is also more similar. Okay. That is, when people were very synchronized, also they felt the amount of time has passed was very similar. They were in agreement about the passage of time. So it wasn't that time went faster or slower. It was that people were more in agreement when their brains was more in agreement. When you say they were in sync in terms of their time perception, is that to say that they all experienced time flying in theory uh, together? They would all say that time flew or how would you say that? No, it wasn't It wasn't that they felt that time was faster or shorter. We asked them to estimate how much time do you think went by. Uh, it wasn't that they had a perception of a longer or a shorter interval, but it was more similar. Okay. When, when people would say, oh, um, this clip was... 10 seconds long or this fraction was 10 seconds long and this other person would say oh this was 12 and the other would be 16 and the other would be 4 it'll be all over the place that would tend to happen where we actually had a very unengaged audience okay whereas when people were really into it and we knew this from from uh, monitoring uh, the audience and also from monitoring brain activity when they were very engaged everybody uh, said, oh, this was 12 seconds, this was 12 and a half, this was 11. It was very tightly um, uh, around the actual correct time. So people were more in agreement as to how much time passed when their brains also were more synchronized. So you weren't really assessing how like, how different their perception was from reality. You were measuring how unified they were in their accuracy. That's right. As a group, they were actually not that bad. As a group, they were they were hitting the, the right number, more or less. Okay. Or, That's interesting. Some people are notoriously bad at estimating time. Yeah. So, um, but they weren't they weren't too bad. Well, on on that point of of, of time perception, though, I, I when I was reading that part of that paper, I was thinking about it from my own perspective, and I and I think in the moment a lot of times i feel time flies when i'm having fun but it's when in retrospect when i'm asked afterwards to think about it that i feel like it was longer but it's like yeah. it's like it's like the it's like the um, i don't know it's like it's like different space like, yeah yeah it's like time stretches and shrinks at the same yeah. time yes yes yeah, yeah. um but one one study that came out not long ago uh showed that if there's more stuff happening in the brain I mean, literally, I mean, it sounds very loosey-goosey the way I'm saying it. But when there's more stuff happening in the brain, people feel that more time has elapsed. Wow. So this is on a different scale. This is on scales of minutes because we were we were studying seconds, yeah, a second or so on a scale of many minutes. Um, when you think back, it seems as though when we think back at how much time elapsed, what we may have, what we may use as a reference is how much stuff did happen. So when a lot of stuff happened, we feel like a lot of time has passed. So that had a correlate in brain activity. When brain activity changed a lot from one state to the next, and there's a lot of transitions from state to state, then people judge the time as having been longer than when really little, little happened in your brain during that period. Then you would judge the time as not as long. So when more stuff happens in your brain, then it seems that more stuff, you know, more time elapsed. Yeah. So, but this is on a time scale of um, minutes. This is a study with functional magnetic resonance fMRI, which looks at uh, uh, brain activity um, of, uh, from uh, from the hemodynamics. Hemodynamics, the blood flow. It turns out that I don't know if you're interested that much, but it turns out that when your brain becomes more active, a specific brain area, it'll recruit more oxygen. 
and you can measure that fluctuation in the oxygen level and so you can tell from the oxygen supply essentially what your brain is doing so that that um, that um, modality is, is, a, is a form of magnetic resonance mri and so with that technique they were able to look at longer time scales and had this finding that when more stuff happens in your brain then you feel more time has elapsed that's that's fascinating i i so so what what do you find what's what's i mean can you give me a sense of how early on we are in kind of our understanding of the brain i hear all the time that we know so little ultimately but we're all studying it as you mentioned machine learning is all the rage at the moment how oh. how how early on are we in our understanding of the brain well i don't know the one thing you for sure on any scientist you'll ask them oh, how much more work is to be done and tell, oh we barely understand anything we're watching the surface it's our business <laughs> right It'd be a fool to tell you to, oh, no, we solved that all, we're done. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, but um, because you bring up machine learning in that context, the one thing that's really interesting right now is there's actually a lot of synergy between these two fields, um, artificial intelligence and brain studies. Um, early, early machine learning efforts benefited from understanding the architecture of the brain, um, but the opposite is happening now. Machine learning is really making a break breakthrough and it's kind of informing also neuroscientists how to think about why the brain is organized the way it is. So there's a lot of crosstalk actually between these two disciplines and I think we're in an area of rapid advances. Um, I, I really truly think that and understanding because one thing is to understand where the cells and how they connected and but, but understanding how they compute yeah. and how we can make sense of, in, in, that, that I think that um, all of these AI guys are actually contributing to that. And so it's just kind of a nice time to be in. I think we're making rapid progress. It would make sense that, that both fields would sort of be feeding each other at this point. Are you, yeah. um, I mean, is, 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 how do you, how do you feel? Do, do, do you think that, that business interest with machine learning is helping getting this pushed as well? Like, is is there a lot of new funding for this sort of research that there wasn't before, or am I just yes, definitely, definitely? Yeah. Well, there's there are a lot of resources thrown at it right now. Yeah. That's definitely helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they actually don't really care about how the brain works, but the, the investigators are in it. Yeah. They end up having a scientific curiosity and this proliferate, this cross-pollination that is between the fields doesn't come out because somebody's putting a lot of money necessarily, but but because investigators in the fields are kind of looking at each other. What are you doing? Yeah. 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 So, but, but yeah, there's definitely a, a big push um, in the commercial world to, to understand um, learning in particular. Well, you you mentioned that that uh, at the beginning of our talk that that getting your it's easier to get your hands around some of the ways that our brain that like neural processing works rather than some of the questions about consciousness and whatnot at least at an early yeah. point. How yeah. do we eventually make that transition? Do do you see yourself just building sheet upon sheet upon sheet and eventually we're talking about consciousness, or do we at some point come at it from a different angle, or do you have any thoughts at all on that? Consciousness is a big one. I don't like to talk about it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big one. Uh, or any of those big concepts. How do you jump from the, the little thing to the big thing? Uh, right. Um, I think there's a, there's, there's a lot in, in sort of this more, 
I think there's a lot that we can learn from other disciplines um, too. I mean, philosophy has had a lot to say about consciousness for a long time. Um, um, authors have had a lot to say about it too. And so I think that, that those, those topics, we can approach them from, from both ends, from sort of the more meta metaphysical and from more in biology on one end, and eventually, hopefully, we will meet. Um, I, don't, I don't think that can be a, purely a bottom-up, and I will understand more and more and more. So I think that a lot of disciplines um, will have a role in, in, in that. And, and uh, uh, I also am curious about, with some of this stuff, how, how is, is, it, is it any more difficult, this is just my layman perspective, is this any more difficult to like replicate experiments like this uh, at the level of the brain, the sort of things that you're doing right now, is that, is that harder to replicate? Like in theory, if somebody across on the other side of the world tried to do the exact same experiment, but had different videos in theory, it's a different experiment, right? So is there, it, it, I guess, is, is it at all more difficult in this field to do that sort of stuff or is it fairly easy to replicate? You mean when we're talking about consciousness and these more abstract concepts? No, or? what you're doing, like like the sort of stuff that you can get your hands around. Yeah. No, I think that it's very, I mean, there are a lot of labs working with this this this, this business of recording brain signals and, and looking at video. Video games, now this is the thing that I'm interested in now is video games too. Video games are different because, you know, each video game is different when you play it, right? You, you don't play the same video game exactly the same way. It's, it's, it's harder to compare one against the other. So video games certainly have more freedom and therefore are less reproducible. So they have... Uh, what we're finding with video games, by the way, sorry, this is totally... No, this is fascinating. Is that um, it may be, and we're not sure yet, but it may be that when you're perceiving something visual, just the visuals, the cars or whatever shooting or whatever is going on, the visual dynamic, it may be that we perceive it very differently when we're just watching, say somebody else was playing, you're just watching them, versus when you're actually playing. Okay. That, so so that, that what seems to be pure perception, just basically just stimulus in, is very different depending on our state, whether we're reacting to it or whether we're just simply passively viewing. So that's, that, that's another uh, uh, thing. So obviously reproducing a video game is much different than reproducing a video, but, but for video, it's very reproducible. So people could do the same work anywhere, really, if, if they use the same so equipment. So it would, it would be fascinating, I guess, to find out if someone, and maybe someone has, I, I don't know, if someone took your experiments, did them in a bunch of different other countries and saw if people reacted to that video differently, yeah. would that suggest yeah. things to you about, about different cultures reacting to things differently? Or Yeah, yeah. I mean, that definitely is something that's been on the back of my mind. And as I said, in New York City, I should be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if there's one place to do it, it's here. Yeah. Um, but well, I expect, as I said before, I expect that there'll be differences on the level that you could predict, namely that some things, like for instance, I show you, a, a, you know, some more art house film, and right. you put a kid to watch it, they'll get bored out of their mind, right. and they won't be paying any attention, and, and, and an adult that, that's really into that genre might really enjoy it, and really, and so we might find obvious things like that. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I wouldn't, you know, have any sort of strong hypothesis. I mean, we did look at it, um, yeah. by the way. We did look at, for instance, 
um, whether we find obvious differences, even just in the way we look at films, just to, to scan paths, whether there are obvious differences with age or whether there are differences with culture or gender and so on. We didn't really find anything obvious. Yeah. So uh, I think that Hollywood movies work across the world for a yeah. reason. Yeah. Um, they're, they're really connecting with something that it's good for the bottom line, namely that uh, that we have common things that you know action works everywhere, right? Yeah. And horror probably works everywhere. Uh, yeah, well, and quite frankly, story I would argue because because oh, for, yeah. for a long time Hollywood told stories better than anyone, and 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 yeah. you know European cinema would there'd be a lot more mood pieces, more kind of you know uh, you'd get you you there's there's a there's a like I think about like today if if um. There's, uh, you know, South Korean films come to the United States market and they don't perform as well. And it's interesting to see that because it's like, well, it must it, they, they're doing booming business in South Korea. So why would they not do booming business here? Yeah. But American films you send over there and they're much broader. They're much more like archetypal, much more mythological in nature, much more story driven. And they seem to do mm-hmm. gangbusters everywhere. It's it's fascinating. I don't know why that's not my my art. I don't know <laughs> what it is, but uh, that's that's where some of the other people who have been interviewing maybe can tell tell you more. <laughs> right? No, right? But it's but it's 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 very it's very interesting to to hear this yeah. research. It's interesting. Um, yeah. uh, I, I guess do you do you feel who 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 do you find uh, uh, or who do you think could could like use this information um, or should or should be should be most interested in it? I obviously feel like everyone on my end, content creators should be very interested in this. Is there anyone else that you think should, should be making also, use of this? So in New York, you, you, you meet a lot of people, right? And so there are of course filmmakers. And I, I was telling a friend of mine that's, that's, um, you know, it, it makes movies and he's like, what are you crazy? The last thing I want is some sort of geek <laughs> putting electrodes on people and telling me how to do my art. My art, no way, get out of here! Right, right. <laughs> so actually, I think that the content creators are the least interested in it. <laughs> See, and I, and I don't get that because because as as a content creator, I my argument against that is that we we make so many decisions. Not for irrational reasons, not just the artists, but the people who fund our art. You know, if, if, if you had a studio head making a Hollywood film and they just feel something irrationally that they want to change in your movie, well, you could, in theory, hook somebody up to all this stuff and actually measure how they're reacting to your movie, and it wouldn't need to be irrational choices. You'd actually be going, look, they're engaged here. Like, you're wrong. Hey, I'm not trying to push a product here. I'm just telling you my <laughs> Uh, I respect the artist that that feels that they have a way of connecting uh, and and they know what they you know they, they have do. they operate different they have a vision of what they want to put out there they sometimes do it at great sacrifice and yes. so I don't want to mess with them. <laughs> However, you. if you're in marketing, then you should be paying attention and there's a lot of interest in marketing on this. Yeah, um, I mean the fact that we looked at advertising is no accident. There are a lot of marketers that want to know. What's happening in your head? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? I can take a questionnaire. I can do some service and so on, but it's not going to tell me what's happening in your brain. Right, right. <laughs> and so marketers will love to know that. And what what happens on a sort of more um, emotional level, perhaps, well, can I not get out of questionnaire? So marketers, so this ter- the term there is neuromarketing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of quacks out there in that field. There's a lot of... Um, 
people that made early promises that are not funded in absolutely anything uh, mm -hmm. other than the fact that they want to sell a product. Mm -hmm. So, so marketers that are interested in this should also be aware that not all of that's claimed with neuro is really um, just because it's neuro doesn't mean it's got any basis in actual science. Yeah. So, but, but I think that, that, of course, the work we've done is solidly. <laughs> right. Uh, no, no, but seriously, we've been very open about what, what we find and published everything and so on. So I think in, in marketing, there's an opportunity to, to find out what, what ads work, what ads won't work. And, and, um, and so that's an interesting conversation to have that I think is worthwhile having. What, what advice would you give to those marketers in sorting out the the kind of charlatan type stuff from the the, the actual science talk to me <laughs> there you go. I, can, I can't tell you in public I, but I, talk to me in private i'll tell you who i trust and who i don't there you go there you go but generally, i mean it's easy if if they've published their studies in peer-reviewed journals then you it's a good bet that it's a bit more serious sure yeah that makes sense um, I guess uh, on, on, on that point, I, I, I'll wrap up our conversation. I, I, I really thank you so much for, for the time you gave uh, today. Um, I find this fascinating. So, so I, 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 and I know your time is valuable. So, but thank you so much for, for spending the time here. Yeah, anytime. It was fun.